So the Bible reading this morning is from the New Testament and it's from the Gospel according to St Mark and we're reading from chapter 10 verses 1 to 12. So that's Mark chapter 10. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? Jesus replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Hello. Hello, everyone. I'm Pastor Brendan. I'm delighted to be bringing the word to you today. Um, We got that reading from the New Testament as part of this um, engagement with the book of Exodus because the commandment we're working with today is thou shalt not commit adultery. And so we're going to be looking at what Moses meant when he said that, when God gave it to him, what it meant for those people, and then how Jesus talked about that in the New Testament as well. So I'm going to pray, and then we are going to continue with our series going through the uh, commandments. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you've given it to us so that we can know your will better. We pray you open our hearts to your word and open up your word to our hearts. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. This is a painting by the Italian Tintoretti, circa 1550. It's Christ and the woman taken in adultery um, from that story in John 8. As was common for paintings in the Middle Ages, it's as much a symbol as it is an attempt to recreate the scene. Jesus is sitting there with his halo, um, as the many halo gentlemen behind him are probably his disciples. In the middle of the painting there, you've got this woman looking very much like European nobility of the 16th century, not quite a Jewish one of the first. And on the right, nearby, a couple of soldiers who are sort of wandering on their way. There is one figure scowling back at Jesus as he is walking away. He has a black cowl, a kind of an anti-halo visually, probably the last of the lady's accusers trickling away from the scene. And this is one of the best known scenes probably in all of written history and recorded history, the best known parables, best known um, teaching stories of any kind is learning about this. And that's interesting because it's contested as to whether or not it's truly part of the scriptures. But this is nonetheless one of the best known scenes in all of human history. This woman is dragged before Jesus. She is almost executed before the Son of God tells the crowd that he who is 
without sin should cast the first stone, and dejected, they all leave the scene. Jesus tells this adulteress, now go and sin no more. It's controversial because the earliest copies of the Gospel of John we have don't feature that chapter, only in the later ones, and in the majority of later ones for that matter. And some scholars say it was added later and it wasn't part of the inspired word. I'm part of the group that thinks otherwise. It thinks that it was part of the original scriptures, but then removed initially, and then finally restored. And I believe that because it's so easy to imagine that this passage was very galling and upsetting for early church folks and ancient people. Everyone seems to agree that adultery is a terrible crime, and it needs to, well, it can't simply go unpunished. And the idea that Jesus would allow this to go unpunished in this story is unthinkable to ancient people. Yet, to you and I, who live in a kingdom not hot off the press, but in fact 2,000 years steeped in reading and teaching about everything Jesus said and did, this sounds very much like the Jesus we know. And when we engage with the topic, we follow his example. Adultery is an extraordinarily serious sin, and for some people, it's the sin they will have to spend the majority of their lives consistently battling as a temptation. But Jesus reveals that it's a sin whose roots can't be addressed by a simple punishment. And our respect and how we treat the seventh commandment, that we should not commit adultery, has to be more sophisticated than it was for Moses' people when it was given to them. So the task that's before us is going to look like this. We have to look at what Moses and his people must have understood when God gave them this commandment, what it meant to Moses' generation for marriage and how not to violate that through adultery. What did marriage mean then? What did it mean to break that commandment? Why was it so important to uphold? We have to look at what Jesus said about adultery, how he interpreted Moses' law and what indeed he might have added to it. How had marriage changed in that time? Uh, how did the understanding of our responsibility to God's institution of marriage, how did that change? And does Jesus, in fact, contradict Moses' teaching as he has been accused of? And finally, we have to ask, how are we to understand this commandment now? How has marriage changed since Jesus' time on earth? Is the commandment less or more relevant now? And how should it inform modern believers on how to live? This is an interesting picture. This is a picture of, I'm going to mangle the names in some of these. This is Draupadi, a princess and queen in an Indian epic whose name I am also in danger of mangling, the Mahabharata. Uh, it's, a, it's a Hindu equivalent of the Bible, maybe, let's say. Um, contains their stories of, of ancient Indian families and their origins and their wars. And, um, Draupadi is naturally is the woman sitting on the throne there, and uh, the other five figures, even the vaguely feminine ones to the sides, are five men. They are brothers, and in the Mahabharata, they are Draupadi's husbands. The idea of a woman having multiple husbands is completely alien to our culture. But there are people groups in India even today, in some places in India and some other parts of the world, who still create marriages this way. It seems to come out of a need to solve the inheritance problem. What does a poor family do if they have three sons? They can divide the land three ways and give each son a third of the house in a tiny plot of land. That won't work long term. And if this is a, a European family in the Middle Ages, they solve this problem by what's called primogeniture. That means they give it all to the first son. The second son they send off to be a monk. And the third gets shuffled out into the world to make his own fortune, maybe. 
In certain parts of ancient and modern India and in Tibet and other places, they solved this problem by marrying all three of their sons to one wife. Now, there's only one set of grandkids to worry about. The property doesn't get broken up. And each son gets to have their wife to himself all two days of the week, I guess, with Sunday off. Um, this is a certainly historically less common marriage arrangement than one man having multiple wives. This man is Ziona Chana. He's also in a part of India. He has 39 wives, 94 children, and 33 grandkids. He is, is the largest, I guess, single father family in China. I'm sorry, in India, I should say. Um, he is wealthy enough to house all of his family in the same 100-room complex. Um, this marriage is obviously not about preserving inheritance in a concise form for obvious reasons. This is much more about the notion of having a family, children to carry on the family name and the legacy, security and wealth for his many wives, and I suspect the idea of marrying a pretty young woman, woman every year for 40 years might have some other inspirations as well. The point is that we must be careful when we're talking about something like marriage in an ancient or a foreign context and not force our assumptions upon that text. Historically, marriage has been, like it or not, about inheritance, about legacy, about protection, about safety or tradition, and love turns up reasonably late on that list. You come to love the one, or several, you marry, not marry the one you love. At least that's the ancient view of it. Marriage for us in the West, however, is very much about love first and foremost. All the stories we write and we watch about marriage tend to feature either people seeking out their true love against terrible obstacles, your Romeo and Juliet style stories, or it's a story pitting the tension of marrying for love against the old societal pressures of marrying for wealth or station. This is your Pride and Prejudice type uh, story, or of the 100 TV knockoff movies with the same premise which women all love all of which have basically the same story. The young woman's saying, but mama, how can I marry a man I don't love? She will say, that's just what women do, foolish girl. I'm a crotchety old metaphor for tradition. So <laughs> it's really hard for us to think of something so fundamental to our world, like pursuit of love as the first part of marriage being different. But it was different, and I will show you how it was different. Observe these verses. This one's from Exodus 21, 10 to 11. If a man marries another woman, in addition to the first one, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment of money. This doesn't say that a man cannot have two wives. It says that he can take a second wife if he does not neglect the first. And if he does, then she is free to leave. In Exodus, God's rules about marriage are coming to a society that has already got a cultural acceptance of the idea of men having multiple wives in some cases. And God, in his infinite wisdom, does not flip their culture over all at once, but he gives them rules by which they can build a better society and a better culture, and to which he will keep sending prophets and revelation to make them more and more like he would have them to be. But there is no instant snap of the fingers change from 12 tribes wandering and barbaric and into a sophisticated, legislative, civilized people. It just doesn't happen that way. And if he demanded that change of them, they probably would not have been able to do it. 
But this law protected women in that society from the worst of abuses. The Hebrew family structure begins with the man. The man is head of the family. If the family needs food, it is his responsibility to procure it. If someone threatens the family, it is his responsibility to fight them, possibly to the death. This trade-off comes on the other side with the fact that the wife in Jewish law more or less becomes the husband's property. That's not an attractive way to phrase it, not pleasant to modern sensibilities, but there it is. That's kind of how it was in the ancient world. In the ancient world, women were astonishingly vulnerable. And women today in this most advanced and safest country the world has ever known still feel very vulnerable walking home at night, for example, by themselves. Can you imagine what it's like for a woman living in a world with no street lights, no police, no phones, and no mace? They are indescribably vulnerable. And so in marriage, a woman left the protection of her father's house and moved into the protection of her husband's house. And if a husband decided he didn't like his wife and picked up a new one and began neglecting the first, then she was released. She, was, she ceased to be his. She was entitled to pick up her children, because in Jewish law they are hers first and his second, and go back to her father's house or to whatever place she felt most cared for. And if this law wasn't there, then she would have to endure anything that she was put through and have no right at all to leave. It improves on a very, well, bad ancient culture incrementally. But how about this verse? If a man finds a girl who is a virgin, who is not engaged, and seizes her and lies with her, and they are discovered, then the man who lay with her shall give to the, the girl's father 50 shekels of silver, and she shall become his wife. Because he has violated her, he cannot divorce her all, all his days. Also from Exodus 21. This is a verse often distorted by enemies of Scripture. They will take it to mean that the Bible values women so little that if she is raped, then she is forced to marry her rapist because she is worth nothing. In fact, this verse isn't actually about rape at all. That's dealt with in the immediately previous verses, which you can look up if you like, in which a man who commits rape is beaten to death with rocks. This rule is not about physically seizing a girl. It's about a kind of a forceful coercion, a reluctant seduction to which she unwisely consents. And in such a case, he's obliged by the law to marry her for that and to provide for her and to protect her and give her children. What if he liked her just enough to go to bed, but not enough to marry her? Too bad, dum-dum. You're a husband now. Get a job, be a man, also you're her dad money. This law is about discouraging men from exploiting women who are naturally more vulnerable than the men are. The Jews in Moses' day were 12 distinct tribes just leaving Egypt for the first time in their lives. They just stopped being slaves. They were just starting to have their own beginnings of maybe a stable God-honoring culture. And so the rules in Exodus are there to take them from this primitive, pathetic state into something a little more advanced with a baseline for becoming a civilized people who can honor God with the way they live. And that baseline flows out of the Ten Commandments. You can't live in peace if people are coveting and trying to take what is yours. You can't have security if people are free to steal from you or if they are strong, steal from you if they are stronger than you or kill you if you fight back. And you cannot have a culture that passes on wisdom, wealth, progress, or knowledge of the God who led them out of Egypt without a strongly defined marriage unit. 
Marriage is how property and money is consolidated and passed on to the next generation. Marriage ensures children have safety to grow and learn their tradition and worship of God that they are expected themselves to pass on. Marriage stops women from being quite so incredibly vulnerable in a world run on structures of physical strength. So is it any wonder that the violation of marriage, which we call adultery, at a time when this practice was just being established in the fledgling nation of Israel was a crime so severe it was punished by death. And that's what the seventh commandment was about when God wrote it on the tablets for Moses. God was seeking to build out of a lawless pile of freed slaves, a people who reflected his love and faithfulness to the world. And so that commandment gets backed by a great deal of additional laws that come in through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, the rest of Moses' writing. They explain the circumstances under which one might punish according to this commandment. If a man sleeps with another man's wife, those two adulterers are killed because they violated that man's marriage covenant. If a man married or otherwise sleeps with an unmarried woman, he must marry her and pay her father for the privilege. He cannot just use her and abandon her. And if a woman deceives her husband about being a virgin before they are married, she is killed. Now, these are extremely severe laws. But if these laws are not instituted at this time, no nation can grow because a nation is built out of families and so the law takes the most extreme position possible to ensure the birth of the Israelite people has this godly marriage in its foundation. Now there's one exception I can find in these laws. There's no offense listed for a woman who has been disowned or orphaned or widowed. This is the class of woman who is likely to become a prostitute in the ancient world. A man with no family is his own family. He can get a job, he can do the hard labor required to farm, he can reasonably defend himself if attacked. A woman has no protection if she has no family in the ancient world. And I expect the reason that there is no punishment listed in scripture for prostitution is because God, not because he endorses it, but because such women already have such a disastrously hard and shameful life It would be cruel to punish them just for seeking to survive. I suspect this is why Jesus is so kind to prostitutes among other vulnerable types when he comes to earth. So that's what this commandment is about in its historical context when we're talking about Moses in that generation. It's building marriage rules for a people who have been slaves for 400 years and don't know anything about being their own society. It guards those marriages with the strictest punishments because of how vital it is to God's plan. And then 1,500 years later, Jesus comes into the world. He comes to Israel, the nation built by those people following the rules, then destroyed for their failures and then rebuilt again. It's now occupied by Gentile soldiers who do not follow God's law and run by religious leaders with wealth and freedom to study both the laws of Moses and the last one and a half millennia of Jewish chin-scratching about the application of those laws. It's to this Israel that Jesus comes, and he says, as we have read earlier, then they said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send his wife away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife so that they will become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. 
He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Now, this is also the Jesus who said clearly that he did not come to abolish the law. He's not overturning Moses. He is not contradicting Moses. And Moses had said that, just like a woman could leave her husband if he had failed to provide and protect her, a man could divorce his wife if he discovered something about her that he found detestable. Perhaps she hates him. She is pining for another man. In such cases, Moses says, you write her a letter of divorce and you get on with your lives. Yet something is different 1,500 years later when Jesus is talking. Jesus says the law of Moses came in the way it did because their hearts were hard. Their hearts were hard. What did that mean? To modern ears, it sounds like meanness, stubbornness, a refusal to listen, but it can't just be that because he is talking to the Pharisees who are mean and stubborn and refuse to listen. And he is not letting them off the hook. In this context, it has to mean more than this. The Greek word is sclerocardia. Cardia is heart. Sclero means hard because dry. Like hard-packed Central Australian dirt. Like a mechanism that has no oil so it is rusted shut. Jesus is saying that God gave a more lenient expectation to the ancient Hebrews because they were ignorant, abused, benighted people coming back into the light of divine guidance. He gave them the least demanding rules about marriage he could so that they could obey them, but the most exacting punishment so that they would have to. But the people in Jesus' day, and especially the Pharisees, did not have a hardness of heart due to dryness. The providence of God and the wisdom of the scriptures had been pouring down on them for centuries. Prophet after prophet has come to them and told them how to follow God better. They'd lost God's favor and regained it by failing to learn and then learning again. And finally, they'd purged themselves of the false gods they had been commanded to give up a thousand years earlier. They had learned slow and hard, but God had reigned on their hearts and they had slowly drank in his wisdom. They knew better. The kind of people who received Moses' law were the kind who might simply have killed their wives if they were not able to divorce them. The kind of men to whom Jesus was speaking would not do that. But they might divorce their aging wife on trivial grounds once their sons had grown up and left, and then use their wealth to attract their younger wife. They might have used the threat of easy divorce as a club to manipulate their spouse in marriage. They might have even married a woman and then unmarried her as a workaround to legalize and legitimize prostitution. If that last one sounds absurd, Islam has that same concept. It's called a joy marriage that has been alternating between banned and encouraged in that religion for the last 1,500 years. Eskimos have a long-standing tradition of what they call wife lending, which is exactly what it sounds like. Do not underestimate the creativity men will employ to gratify their short-term desires. But Jesus says those Jews were hard-packed, dry dirt upon which God had not yet reigned. You have been drowning in blessing for centuries. Which means that God expects them not just to abide by the rules given to Moses, but to understand the principles he was enshrining with those rules. The Pharisees should have known that the marriage laws were there because God values what good marriages produce. Faithful, loving, responsible people who pass on their wisdom and their religion to their kids. 
a man and a woman joined together in marriage represent the image of God in a way that any singular person cannot. And there is something profoundly sacred about uplifting that image and that union. Jesus also said this, You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, there's been much discussion about what constitutes looking at a woman lustfully. Estimates range from Jesus making a deliberately ridiculous example, don't worry about it, all the way to a man who recognizes another woman is sexually attractive, has committed a sin as grievous as cheating on his wife. I would like to suggest that Jesus is intending his hearers to understand that the sin problem is not actually in their actions. It's in them. The time has come for them to stop thinking about sin as something you accidentally step in and then can hose off, or that you bump into, or that you do in a moment of weakness. The problem is not even the sin itself specifically. The sin comes and goes. The problem is the nature of the sinner that inclines them to sin. Imagine, if you will, a hypothetical, unattractive married man. I will be making it difficult for you, so close your eyes if you have to. Not a specific person, but a hypothetical man. And this man would absolutely cheat on his wife if he could, if he could attract a willing partner. This man is guilty of adultery, even though he is not able to commit adultery. The problem is with his soul, not in the temporarily coupling of bodies. A man who is too weak or scared to kill, but hates someone enough to do it, is a murderer in God's eyes. Because if the situation was a little bit different, they absolutely would murder. It's in them. It's easy to resist the sins that resist us. But God knows our hearts. And Jesus says to his people, time's up. The training wheels are off. You have had generations of teaching. Now we are playing for keeps. God will not forgive a sin against the principles of his holiness even if it abides by the law that was intended to turn people to those principles. It's not just about the protection of vulnerable people or about the orderly transmission of wisdom or property over generations. Marriage is also about acting in our lives in a manner that reflects and honors the author of our lives. And damaging that image is a terrible sin. So we can see how God's expectation of how his people would honor marriage changed over time. What was a sin did not change. What was detestable to him did not change. What he expected his people to be able to accomplish in their obedience did change. Because the ancient people were raw, they were hard-hearted, they did not expect so much. He did not expect so much from them as he did from his well-tended, well-learned people much later on. The commandment to commit no adultery can be lived out more fully later than earlier because the people are wiser. So then the question must naturally become, if the Jews, soaking in the words of Moses for 1,500 years, had God's expectation of wisdom and high behavior where it came to honor marriage, what does he expect of us? His people who have been soaking in the words of Jesus for 2,000 years. And I think the answer is a reflection of his image in marriage that is purer still than it even was in Jesus' day. The obvious example for this is monogamy, is the marriage of one man and one woman. Ancient Jewish law tolerated a man having multiple marriages to multiple women as long as those women were well treated. 
And I expect that if Moses had come to certain parts of India instead of Israel, the law would have tolerated a woman having multiple husbands in the same way. The practice of multiple spouses was less common in Jesus' day, but it still did exist. Today in Christian nations, or ostensibly Christian nations, monogamy is very much the law. But it's still tacitly accepted, particularly for powerful men, let's say, to have a formal wife with whom you have a family, and then a mistress whom the wife may or may not know about. The mistress is furnished with wealth and protection in exchange for her exclusive affection. Certain US presidents are notorious for this behavior. And though the Bible grudgingly accepts multiple marriage in the Old Testament, and never strongly gets around to condemning it in the New Testament, we can reasonably say that we don't have to be, we don't have to excuse behavior like that anymore. We have no excuse to have that behavior anymore. Our culture has had thousands of years to reflect on the scriptures and to follow the leading of God. And because of this, our culture has concluded that you don't actually get to sustain more than one marriage because that is not the template for marriage that God produced with Adam and Eve that he has exalted all through history. For us, marriage is not so much about property or even legacy, but about finding and joining your life to someone who compliments you so wonderfully that you can say, like Adam did, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This person is the same as me, and being a part of them, being apart from them would be like being torn apart. Now, there's an obvious question here that we would be negligent not to touch. Moses made divorce available because the people were too raw. Jesus increases the stakes. He says, now any man or woman who divorces their partner and remarries is actually committing adultery by doing so. And the opinion of the church historically has generally been that this means you only get one shot at marriage. And Jesus has taken away any second chances except in the case of the death of one partner. Widows can get married again, divorcees cannot. And some Christians hold to this view today. It's not sinful to hold that view. But today, many Christians, I would say most Christians, Baptists and otherwise, attempt to keep what is the principle of Jesus' teaching, that marriage cannot be dissolved simply by deciding it to be so, and that such a bond endures even if it is legally dissolved. It takes something severe and fundamentally damaging to the nature of the marriage to really destroy it. Sustained infidelity, ongoing abuse, something like that. In that case, many pastors would take the principles that Jesus laid down and say to the wife or husband, did you do everything reasonably possible to save this marriage? Did you strive to reconcile and endure just short of self-destruction? And if the answer is no, we just sort of fell out of love, the answer then is marriage isn't just about feeling. And love follows the sincere actions of faithfulness. Getting remarried while the option to seek reconciliation with the old partner remains then a kind of adultery. But if the answer is yes, I did everything I could, but she walked away from God and our family and refuses to see me, or he's been consistently abusive and refuses to learn the steps to take control, remarriage after those circumstances is not what Jesus is talking about. And I think it is insanely callous to call that adultery. You may disagree with me, and you may send your reasoned and passionate arguments to the usual email address. But there are other modern applications of this commandment that shouldn't be so contentious. 
There is emotional exclusivity in marriage, which neither Moses nor Jesus puts down in Scripture, but which we are bound to honor because it plainly builds on Scripture. If marriage goes into a prolonged period of suffering, the emotional intimacy might not be there, and the desire to seek it out somewhere else can be very strong. And it's possible to become too close even without becoming physically close to someone else. Some people have very strict rules about not speaking to a member of the opposite sex alone. That might be too far, it might not. But it is obviously wrong when, say, one is carrying on an intimate friendship or discussion with this um, opposite sex friend, let's say, and they are compelled to conceal this conversation or to lie about who they spent time with to their spouse. The desire to conceal gives proof to the guilt. And we, more than any other generation, will be held by God to a standard of fidelity in our marriages that includes avoiding adultery, even when it has no physical component. It's likewise with pornography. It's not expressly adultery in the traditional physical sense because someone making use of this of pornography is not being united to another person. There's no uniting there happening at all. But pornography may feature someone who is going to be someone else's wife or husband or may never be there, may someone else's partner. It may feature people that don't exist, but the sin is in the principle. It is in taking control of sexuality away from the one person who should have it, your spouse. And God will hold our generation more than any other before us to a standard of marital fidelity that includes avoiding that brand of adultery too. God created marriage for our good. Today, in an age and a place with safety and wealth like the world has never seen, we more than anyone before us have an obligation to live out the kind of marriage that God intended for Adam and Eve in paradise. Intimate union between man and woman, unbroken physically or spiritually. It's a call to faithfulness which starts with faithfulness to God and echoes through every other aspect of our lives. So let's treat our marriages not as society dictates, not as history suggests, but as God truly desires us to. And let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you gave us the gift of marriage and we pray that you help us to honor that gift. Teach us how to honor our husbands and wives with our faithfulness to them, body and heart and soul. Even in times of pain or in hurt in those relationships, just as you remained faithful and loving even when we turned from you. Give us the, the kind of devotion in our hearts that stirred you to send your son to save us from our sins. Guard us from temptations, subtle and otherwise, Lord. And let our marriages, as an expression of faithfulness and love for each other, reflect your faithfulness and love for the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.